Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Even before the coronavirus pandemic hit, forcing over 50 million school children in Canada and the U.S. out of class and into lockdown, the strain on North America's education system was already showing. Suffering from the pernicious influence of woke ideology and a relentless assault on individual achievement, many had wondered if the entire system, K-12 through university, was already broken. With the announcement that 48 U.S. states have ordered or recommended schools remain closed this academic year, and with the province of Ontario following suit, what damage is being done to our children's future under the auspices of safety? Well, joining us today to help us answer that question and more is Dr. Duke Pesta, a tenured professor of English at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, academic director of the Freedom Project Academy, and one of America's foremost authorities on the dangers of Common Core. Dr. Pesta, thanks for joining us today on RugWatch. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's great. It's good to finally meet you. I actually discovered your videos on YouTube back in 2017, and they helped me get my head around some of the issues with regard to what's been happening in education under, shall we say, the progressive influence. Now, Dr. Pesta, we've got, um, you've got a show, the Dr. Pesta, is it the Dr. Duke Pesta show? Is that what it is? The Dr. Duke show. Uh, the Dr. Duke show. So I've got a little bit of a clip here. So I'm going to use this to kind of introduce you. Um, and then we're going to jump back um, here in a sec. Public schools and universities are already considering the cancellation of school for the rest of 2020. We'll explain why that's madness while still urging you to pull your kids out of public schools once and for all. I'm Dr. Duke, she's Katie, and this is The Dr. Duke Show. Anybody who criticizes big liberal institutions is immediately accused of wanting to see things fail. You know, you're taking advantage of this, you radical right-wingers, you just want every, you're, 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 which is ironic, right? You think about the degree to which schools and governments have been taking, taking advantage of the corona. Well, look at the new bill that Nancy Pelosi just put forward, $3 trillion. You got the Green New Deal, you're giving all sorts of goodies away to illegal immigrants, and you're, you're doing all sorts of things that have absolutely nothing to do with addressing the people who are suffering. That's taking advantage. Here we are in May, and to try to decide what we're gonna do in, in September is ridiculous. Uh, and the people who want to decide now to cancel things are the ones who are taking advantage, right? In Wisconsin, we have Governor Tony Evers. You may remember that in Wisconsin, the the stoppage of work, the, the, the mandatory quarantine was overthrown by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So what is Tony Evers doing now? He's trying to go back legislatively and give us 157 days with no school. Yep. And then another yeah. 200 days. He wants to go basically an entire year. This is what they do. Even when the Supreme Court of the state of Wisconsin steps in and says, you have violated the Constitution of Wisconsin, you have violated the United States Constitution, rather than give it up, he's trying to find legal ways he can extend for almost a year the time the kids will not be in schools. Almost a year. Wow. What's going on in Wisconsin? Well, you know, we lost Governor Scott Walker uh, to a very close election. And uh, I, I actually have said many times, I think one of the reasons Governor Walker lost, and he lost to the, the Department of Public Instruction guy, the guy in charge of the failed schools of Wisconsin. So what, what a shame. I, I, a lot of us kept trying to get the governor after he passed Act 10, had a real uh, victory over the teachers unions in his second term. He just quit. Like, he wouldn't touch education again. And it's a cruel irony that the person who won the governorship is the guy who, who brought Common Core into the state. 
So Ebers is a, a, a doctrinaire progressive. He's uh, all about power and control. And so being a governor of a state and having a virus, that seems to make him think that he's pretty invincible. Now, that is a trifecta, isn't it? Uh, we're, I'm going to get you to explain for our audience uh, from your professional point of view what progressivism is in a second. Before that, though, I th it's really important. Your Ph.D. is in Shakespeare and Renaissance literature. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Wow. Now, that, is, that means you understand the history of the West. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, my, my shtick is teaching the classics, right? And you can imagine how hard that's getting. I teach everything from the Bible to C.S. Lewis. I teach the great Christian writers, Dante and Milton, Shakespeare and Spencer. So uh, I'm, <laughs> I feel like I'm a, uh, a missionary, not a professor. I've said this many times, that you can go into the darkest ju uh, jungles of Borneo, and you'll find a more receptive people waiting to hear your message than on these college campuses. You are really struggling to get any kind of message across. So uh, explain, and for our viewers, thank you for, you know, doing the show today. I understand that you've got a little bit of a, a scratch. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, is it COVID? No, I actually decided after a month of having a bit of a chest cold, I got one of those stupid free exams. I found out today I do not have COVID. Uh, oh, really? Today? Well, that's good news. Today? I don't know. Actually, for me, though, I've been licking doorknobs for the last two months, praying <laughs> that I get it, because for a while there... Progressives were threatening that the only way you were going to get out of lockdown is if you already had it. But if you were already, if you were in lockdown, how did you get it? <laughs> so, well, licking doorknobs. I mean, why is it when I hear that I think of how did Kamala Harris get where she is? Ding cha. <laughs> oh, that's a very good way to start the show. Um, explain for our viewers uh, some background then. So. You, you, you speak everywhere, you've got your teaching, you've got the Freedom Academy, you've got the stuff on YouTube. Give us the grand uh, uh, story here for us, Dr. Pesta, and sure. no, no humility, it doesn't work for TV. Well, I'm a 27 year university professor, so I have been for 27 years fighting these battles. It, back in the early 90s when I entered my PhD program, a lot of the stuff was just beginning. A lot of the worst aspects were beginning to be made manifest. So. I've seen it all, and I've watched how this has evolved. So that's primarily what I am. I'm a teacher. I'm best in that role. That's the thing that I do better than anything else. And, and everything else I do, I try to bring that, that teaching sensibility to bear. <clears throat> Again, sorry for the coughing. But beyond that, um, I, it, I, it, it, I figured out pretty quick that by the time the kids got to me at college, by the time these kids got to me from high school, they were already largely completely sold down the river. They were anti-American, whatever faith they may have been born with, they've rejected it. They become progressive and secular and atheist and angry. They had been trained already by the middle schools and high schools to hate the West and to hate America. And so I figured if I was going to be able to have an impact, I had to get involved with education on lower levels. So we created Freedom Project Academy. I'm the director. It's a complete online homeschool aid for parents. We... Um, <clears throat> start in kindergarten, go all the way through high school. We're fully accredited. Our kids are going to college. We're classical education online, uh, and the teachers are live. They come over the screen into your computer in your living room, and you, your kids have a virtual classroom. They've got classmates all over the, the country and the world. We've got kids in 14 different countries now. We've been around for about 10 years, and we deliver a classical education based on Judeo-Christian values. No high-stakes testing, no data gathering, no high-pressure career readiness nonsense, just good old-fashioned education that allows them to become what we believe God meant them to be. So 
<coughs> taking a cough again. I'll cough myself out of this. I promise. <laughs> it's not going to be an hour and a half of this. It'll just let me settle no, in here. No worries. But beyond that, too, we've also got, the, besides being the um, director of Freedom Project and a professor, I am also the host of the Dr. Duke show. You've played some clips from it. We're kind of unique. We do five shows a week, half-hour shows, and we give you the latest education news from kindergarten, pre-K, all the way to grad school. We just give you, uh, keep you informed. We deliver the news. We explain what's going on. Um, I'm the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I'm the professor. Katie, my co-host, interesting story. She is a high school teacher. She was taking some of my classes at the university, and she was one of the few English professors, English majors I had, who was as conservative as I was, who was as disgusted by progressivism as, as I was. And so we got along well, and after she graduated, we brought her on, and she's doing great stuff for us, great little uh, discovery there. And then the other thing that I am is 10 years ago when we created Freedom Project, right, finding alternative ways for parents to educate kids out of the public school systems. <clears throat> At that time, about 10, 11 years ago, right when we created this, Common Core was chugging down, chugging down the tracks. The Fed, once Obama took office, you know, the whole thing was scripted. Obama, it's funny. Obama took office in January of 2009, and by March of 2009, the entire program of Common Core had secured funding. It was implemented immediately. They had been planning this for a long time. And so um, I have given about 1,000 talks on Common Core in 48 states. Uh, I give talks regularly about FedEd, the rise of Fed, because what's what Common Core was. Forget everything about standards and math and stuff. It's bad math. It's bad standards. But what Common Core did was to finally, for the first time in American history, elevate the control of education away from the states and local communities, and they, by law, fix it at the federal level. And you know what happens, I, you've seen it in Canada, you know what happens when the feds are in charge of anything like education. It's gonna get less effective, more expensive, and highly political. So uh, we've been fighting that battle for 10 years too. So I've done a lot of those things, but in the uh, abstract, I consider myself a teacher and that's mostly what I do. So with regard to Common Core, and I'm glad that you mentioned uh, Canada, go ahead and have a drink if you've got uh, something there yeah, for that, your throat. That's, that's, yeah. yeah, perfect. Because you're on pretty much all the time. So uh, I, will do the, I will do the same. Our, our our guests at vape actually are always pleading for me to like go to, go to. <laughs> all right, so so Canadians are not going to know what Common Core is. Our American audience, uh, mostly, I would say, has maybe heard of it, but um, it, you won't understand what's wrong with it. Isn't it just some benign good thing that uh, you know that people like to have? So in Canada, so it's 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 centralized control federally. And so Canada already has that to some degree, yep. you know, provincially our provinces do control the education system, but uh, you know, the uniformity across the country is pretty strong. There's no doubt. And I just think Canada is just more lefty than we're just, well, I mean, it, 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 tell me if I'm wrong, but in Canada, they're actually telling Catholic schools, Christian schools, that they better not be citing the Bible on sexuality in private schools, which means they're not really private anymore. Yeah, there, that's right. There is a whole bunch of uh, state intervention into, right. the, into the private school system, and private schools generally are most, mostly on the religious side, there's no doubt. So in the U.S., um, what, what, when Common Core came in, what were the top you know, complaints that you all had about it? Well, it, it's Common Core <clears throat> didn't materialize out of nothing. It's been going on for, really, when you, when it, <clears throat> there's, a reason, there's a reason the founding fathers of this country made no provision for public education. 
they did that because they knew they were all privately educated themselves or they or they learned in one room schoolhouses that and paid for by local communities who hired teachers they knew from their own experience with lack of liberty lack of educational control that when a federal or a state entity completely controls education they're going to educate kids not for your benefit not for freedom or liberty not for your local religious concerns they're going to educate your kids for their own benefit and this is something that had been going on since 1850. It wasn't until 1850, about 80, 70 years after the founding of the country, that we actually had a public school system. And the man who put it together, Horace Mann is his name. There's statues for him in every state in the union. This guy, he, he, he was very clear. He did it not to educate kids, but to separate them from their parents. He did it not to make kids better scholars, but to make them more pliant to the state. In fact, when Horace Mann was putting together his American public school system, he looked for a model. And you know what his model was? He chose the Prussian model of education. Prussia uh -huh. was, of course, a you know 19th century Germany, segment of Germany, very militaristic. They took their kids away from children, away from the parents at very young ages, educated them at the state dime, turned them into warriors for the state. In reality, Prussia was what would become the Hitler Jugend in another couple of generations. That's the system he wanted this system to be. And it's taken a long time to get here, but as so many things in, in, in Western life, Canadian and American life, it sure does seem like those radical progressive ideas are starting to roll downhill, right? They've played the long game. They've infiltrated the schools, infiltrated the universities, infiltrated the media, infil infiltrated Hollywood, the arts. And so now our kids are being sent to public schools, both in America and Canada, and every metric here in the United States shows that over the last 11 years of Common Core, our kids are reading and doing math worse than ever. And they weren't doing it very well 12 years ago. In fact, we're at the bottom, 20, low 20s in the way that we educate our kids in math and reading. And we, we spend almost more education on kids than almost any country in the world. I mean, the South Koreans who educate their kids at phenomenal levels spend about three, $4,000 a year. In this country, it's gotta be $18,000 or so that we spend. And the reason, and so it's not a broken system. Common Core was designed to transfer to transform education. No longer, you and I would call it broken because Common Core demonstrably is not teaching our kids how to read very well. They're keeping our kids illiterate. It's giving our kids horribly low math ability, so much so that they can't even begin college math. It is so poorly poor in terms of its history impact that 80, some 89% of American kids know almost no real civics or American history, according to a recent study. And they're just so this is a, the design. If they're not teaching academic excellence, if they're not teaching kids to find their niche, what it is that appeals to them, what are they doing? What they're doing is two things. One, they're using the schools to drive a wedge between the parents and the kids, as Horace Mann wanted. They're uh, appropriating from parents. Give you one example this radical sexuality education that's all over the Western world. We're teaching five and six and seven year olds that their genitalia doesn't mean they're, they're this or that. I mean, seriously, think about that. You got a six-year-old kid, six-year-old. The mind has not developed, they can't even think abstractly. When you tell a six-year-old, it doesn't matter what's in your diaper, your, your, your pants, you are whatever you say you are. There's no possible way children can come to grips with that. You're, you're forcing really dangerous ideas down the throats of kids because you think it's better that they grow up brainwashed and unable to think for themselves than to let them discover these things on their own. And, do you, and do you think, think about, that do you think opposition to that is strictly a religious thing, or could secular people be totally disgusted with that too? I would think so. Look, 
we how long have in western culture how long have we educated how many thousands of years have we educated little children without telling them how homosexuality works or how heterosexuality works how that's the word i should have said how long have we spent thousands of years we never sat down five six and seven year olds and explained to them what heterosexuality is and why they should consider themselves sexual children at those ages we never taught five and six and seven year olds how to put condoms on bananas because it was age inappropriate and i'd like to think there are a lot of liberals out there but kids aren't stupid the universe the, the elementary schools in both of our countries the middle schools are so progressive why are you afraid of letting kids get to high school before you spring this on them let them decide for themselves and the answer is is because too many of them won't too many of them won't go the way they want them to go and so with common core and i think in your country it's different names and it's happened in different ways but what's ultimately taking place is that education is no longer here's the thing and you i know you've heard this <clears throat> education is no longer about excellence because excellence and grades and achievement is not inclusive i've warned people for a dozen years that notice how quickly no one's talking about diversity anymore for 10 years diversity was everything but guess what we're diverse i mean america you think about america's immigration history there's no country none in the history of the world that has taken more people from more parts of the world. And yet your kids are being taught, our kids are being taught that we are the, we're white supremacist, we're exclusionary, that it's just utter nonsense. We've had uh, high ranking officials, billionaires of every stripe, gay, straight, you name it. But we're teaching kids we're not. And what we're doing is we're telling these kids, uh, we're giving them a view of history of their country. It, it, diversity has been replaced with inclusion. Think about what inclusion means. That's the new buzzword. Inclusion means if you exclude anybody, you're a villain. And if you're giving these kids A's and those kids C's, well, you're including those, excluding those kids from a certain set of, if we don't let every kid go to college, even if most of them can't do it or don't want to, that's exclusionary. So in the name of inclusion, and I've seen this firsthand, what are universities doing? The middle and high school kids are undereducating their students. Guess what? The university's perspective is good in the name of inclusion, we'll lower our standards to take those barely literate kids and give them a college education. And inclusion is the liberal buzzword, right? And it's funny, and you know this to be true. The only thing you can exclude from your inclusive worldview is anybody who's not a progressive. Tolerance, unless you disagree with us. Inclusion, unless you happen to be a Christian or you happen to be a conservative. Then you are the enemy of inclusion, and we can custom we can very with a clean conscience we can exclude you and that is true and the ex, and the excluding is happening as we speak and and it can be quite vicious let me walk you over to uh something that we have curated here up on RegWatch, and uh this is an article that came out just a couple of days after the lockdown so lockdown um hit on march 14th really that's when it impacted for everybody the 13th was the friday how about a friday of the 13th like that one eh and then the next day um, was the Saturday, and it was like ghost town, you know, in so many places. And so just a couple of days after that, on March 19th, the Wall Street Journal wrote a great article, at schools closed for coronavirus, online work won't count. Because administrators can't guarantee all students will have access, some schools call online work, quote, enrichment, and not part of the curriculum. So for all the talk of online learning during shutdowns due to the coronavirus pandemic, many U.S. public school students will find that the work they do while at home is actually optional. It won't be graded and it won't count. 
it's an equity issue. If you can't guarantee all your students have online access, nothing is graded, said Tim Robinson, a spokesman in Seattle Public Schools in Washington, which closed schools and plans to broadcast not for grade educational activities online and by TV. Quote, our goal is to keep the students from going into a summer slide. I mean, really, dear God. So there was like tons of parents. There were, there were secular progressive parents that were all excited about teaching at home and doing that and then realizing, you know, 10 days in, the nightmare of keeping their kids interested in learning when there's no reward. And listen to the absurdity of that. Basically what they're saying is, is, a, is an analogy here. Look, 320 million Americans are gonna get sick. We can save 290 of them, but to do so means we're not gonna save 30 million. Therefore, in the name of inclusion, we have to let them all die. That is literally what they're telling you. We can't give everybody the same education. And by the way, you never will be able to. The, 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 the seriously misguided thinking of these progressives that every kid is the same kid, that every kid has the same capacity, that every kid wants to learn the same things. What makes us beautiful is our diversity. I stunk at math. I was great in books and reading. That's why I'm a professor of English. I'm not hurting anybody. No math professor's offended that I can't add or subtract. And meanwhile, when I get math kids in my classroom who don't read very well, so what? We're not the same. The thing, and that goes back to Common Core. You know, it's very seldom when progressives actually name their big government takeovers what they are. But in Common Core, they did. Common Core literally means lowest common denominator education. What is the lowest we have to, to pull down high achieving kids so that all kids will feel included? Note, you, you're never gonna pull, you were, I don't care how much, I, you could have resurrected uh, uh, Pythagoras from the grave and made, gave him to me as a math tutor. I wasn't gonna get it. My, I don't think that way. And what they're telling you in Common Core is we can't lift up the low performing kids. You know, everybody's bad at something. Nobody's equally good in everything. So in the name of inclusion and social justice, we have to hold down the high achieving kids. I'll give you an example, if I may. When I was in third grade, I had a second grade math education, right? I just didn't like it. And you wanna know why I didn't like it? Maybe I have the mind to do it, but here's why I didn't like it. I went through all the trouble of math and it was always a number was the answer. All that work for three times pi over six, right? And it just didn't do anything for me. I admire people who can do it. But to me, reading stories and, and engaging with ideas, that was a bigger deal. So in third grade, I had a second grade reading uh, math level, but also in third grade, I had an 11th grade reading level. And they, the, back then they let me read 11th grade books. Mm. Can you imagine under the new system what they would do? First of all, my second grade education in math in third grade would be ahead of where these kids are now. Now, third graders are learning first grade math. And there's no way on God's green earth they would have let me read any books over my age limit because that would have been socially unjust. So my one talent would have been stifled. The one thing that I did well would have been artificially tamped down because all the other kids couldn't do it. And that which I failed in was the standard by which kids who could do math had to be held down. That's what we're doing. That's what's common about Common Core. Right, and I think that all parents would recognize uh, whether they've got a child who might be gifted, to use probably what is now an inappropriate term, but the fact is is that children know when they're being held back. Bright children uh, know when they're being held back, and so, the way that you do that is you by creating this, well, for one, you have to obviously teach them to hate themselves, certainly if they're white 
you know, and from and because they're guilty of of mass oppression. So all you know, and then if you're male, uh, if you're a young young male child, you know, you really get nailed with that. So you add these layers on, which designed to you know, certainly if you're bright and stuff, you might not feel like you're being left out or screwed, you might actually feel guilty that you've got some extra capability because that extra capability is making you stand out and, and it's not being rewarded. And in fact, it's being muzzled. So, you know, it really makes you hate yourself. I think there's some real psychological damage going on it, with kids outside of the sexual stuff and everything terrible. else. And I see it at the universities. These kids come to me, like I said, they hate their country. They don't know any history, but they know we're bad. Uh, give me an example. They don't know, my kids, like 80% like of my students don't know that slavery existed in places other than America. I have to tell them. For eight out of 10 of my kids, I'm the one who tells them that. You know, and they, they, they have it drilled into their heads that that's our shame. Oh, and you know this, only white people can be racist. It doesn't matter how that minority who's screaming how he hates you because of your skin color, who's threatening you, he's not racist because you have power over him, right? right. The, the absurdity of this. And notice it's all collective. Right. That's the other thing. And I know you're going to ask me at some point to define progressivism. And this is where I would start. Yeah, well, that's it, going to be the next question. So let's oh, do it. Here's what it is. To me, my de my definition of progressivism starts with this. <clears throat> it is as the Western world moved away from the idea of God and I, I, uh, Judeo-Christian values as the Western world over the last 200 years walked away from believing in that, because I'm going to go on record and say this. The single greatest force in the history of the world promoting the individual was the teachings of Jesus Christ. If you go back and read the Gospels, Jesus didn't get thousands of people together and heal them, right? Jesus's ministry of healing was with individuals. He that and he didn't cater to the rich, he, the societies, detritus, those who were forgotten. He met them where they were. He treated every beggar, every leper. He treated them as human beings, individual. I think the reason the history of the West up until recently has been a history of greater and greater independence, greater and greater liberty is because of those values. <clears throat> and when we walked away from those values over the last 200 years, what replaces them? Collectivism, right? Utilitarianism. <clears throat> we don't value the common core. We don't let Dr. Pesta be good at English because he's good at it and somebody else be good at math because that's unequal. We're going to look at them not as individuals made in the image of God. We're going to look at them as little robotic ciphers that can be programmed, right? Very materialistic. And one of the two things are at the heart of progressivism for me. One, a, Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist, said, and I, I totally agree with this. Dostoevsky, of course, if you don't aren't familiar with him, wrote *Crime and Punishment* and *The Brothers Karamazov*, which I think is the greatest novel ever written. Dostoevsky lived about 50 years before the rise, the Soviet Revolution that Bolshevized Russia. He died in 1881, and he constantly warned in his novels, as Russia became more secular, as Russia looked to the secular West and started to get rid of its religious heritage, the, the, the secular Russia was moving towards what he actually named communism and socialism. And he said, and I believe this, socialism is first and foremost, whatever you, it's not an economic theory, first and foremost, Dostoevsky said, socialism is the question of God or no God. Right. Because when you disavow God, right, then the value of the individual of necessity resides, right? You, you get the starch, the utilitarian arguments of Jeremy Bentham, right? That if you have to kill 100 people to make a million people happy, you got to do it. 
Right. What did Vladimir Lenin say, right, when, it, on his deathbed when he was asked about having any remorse for the lives he had slaughtered about a million people? If you want to make an omelet, you got to break yeah, a few eggs. That's right. And, and compare, if you got to kill 10, if, if you got to break eggs, if you got to kill people to bring about universal happiness, contrast that again to the, I'm not even talking about religion right now, contrast that to the philosophy of Christ where nobody is expendable. Christ didn't die for the rich. He didn't die for the intellectual. He died theoretically for everyone. And the degree to which that philosophy dominated for a couple thousand years, we weren't perfect, but we kept moving in the right way, right? Uh, when the Catholic Church became stale and oppressive, it was reform, right? When the reform, you had movements, right? Uh, the founding fathers of our country were deeply, deeply religious men, all of them. I, I, my kids come to college, and they're convinced that the, the founding fathers were all atheists, despite God here, creator there, all over the founding pages. They sure. actually read, I'll give them passages from the Constitution and the founding documents, where it's talking about a creator and God and liberty that derives not from men, but from, from the creator. And I'll ask them after they're done reading it. Now, what do you believe the founding fathers believed vis-a-vis -vis religion. Oh, they didn't believe anything, Dr. Pastor. They were all secularists. So for me, progressivism is first, Dostoevsky's right, it's the question of atheism. Again, not religiously. The question of atheism in terms of, of, of what, where do we put our faith? In a world beyond our own or a world of materialism? Right. And secondly, because we've chosen materialism, the commune is better. And it's even in our science fiction. What did Spock say? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. Star Trek right? II. Star Trek yep, Two, exactly. Yeah, and and the Vulcans, as we know, were pure logicians. How right. many books? How many books, uh, Brent? How many books have been written in the 20th century by 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 liberals that warn us about a total faith in in reason over everything else? Right. That would you get 1984. Right. Yeah. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. These great dystopian books. Uh, Brave New World. What's the one thing that even liberal authors warned us about for the last hundred years? Don't believe for one minute that human beings are primarily rational creatures. If you do that, you will destroy them. And sure enough, completely ignoring that, that's where we find ourselves. The progressive elite are making a whole lot of omelets, breaking a whole other entire generations of kids are being cracked on Humpty Dumpty's wall to be cooked up in these secular, liberal, atheist, progressive, one-dimensional, monochromatic, one-size-fits-all education camp. Sure, and, and let me add that um, they seem absolutely, not even just incapable, but there, there's a visceral reaction that they have, um, individually and collective as a group, and then of course as an ideology, uh, as a, the dominant hegemic ideology of the day, to use a Gramsci, Gramsci term, is, uh, is the fact that they refuse to compare alternatives. So there could be several alternatives for action to take and, and rational people, because especially we're looking at mitigating risk. I mean, every decision of any consequence is all about assessing the risk and then judging and comparing the alternatives based on mitigating that risk. And if they're, they're loony on this safety issue, which is you know obviously clearly that's why it's not true, because they don't actually compare alternatives towards risk and then use a rational logic, logical brain to then come up with decisions to go forward. They just literally irrationally, through emotion, pick a side or a direction and the herd, they, they move and the herd moves with it. And even if they know immediately that they've gone the wrong way, they can't stop. And that's where you we're know, at with COVID. 
and I want to say this. If you've got progressive listeners out there, please don't be offended what I'm saying because it's fair as fair, right? You mentioned Gramsci, right? We've talked about uh, uh, Marx, Dewey, all the great uh, progressives who are pushing socialism. You can, don't get mad at me for taking my definition of progressivism right back to God or no God because what was the first law of Marx? There is no God. Religion is the opiate of the people. What did Gramsci do? He saw religion as the great myth that destroys possibility in the here and now. Every one of your progressive heroes who have given us this brave new world started by the God question. I'm just pointing out what the other side says, right? If all of those thinkers who have led to this kind of radical, I would argue quasi-fascist sorts of of paradigms, taking little kids away from children like the Prussians did, like the Hitler, like the Nazis did, the Soviets did. And that's the thing, right? You couldn't have had communism, socialism, Marxism, Bolshevism. You couldn't have had it before you got rid of God, right? You had, and, and what happens? When God goes, even if you didn't believe in him, right? The, the medieval kings and queens, right, who, who used religion to subject the masses, still on their deathbed had the sacramental rights because they were frightened. Well, but yeah, this, and, and no one no one says that the masses don't want some subjecting. I mean, let's right. just take a look at the masses sure. today. They they invite it. So it's not even necessarily a pejorative to say that ideology or religion or some other, you know, meaning-making system. I mean, human beings need to understand. Secular people, progressives need to understand that meaning-making systems as strong as religion exist today. And in fact, well, their meaning-making system is as is. strong as any religion. It is utterly cliche to point it out, but with the, the cult of global warming. I'll use my students. These are 23, 24-year-old kids, juniors and seniors, at one of the best Wisconsin university systems in all the country, right? This Wisconsin state system is very highly regarded. <clears throat> and these guys, when you talk to them about this, I ask them about climate change, right? I say to them, okay, can you name a single climate scientist? Not one of them can do it. I Seriously, not one. Name a couple of climate articles you've read. They can't do it. I asked them, okay, all right, you're not scientists, most of you. So tell me, why do you think it's happening? Give me an opinion about what's taking place. They really don't know how to answer the question. And so I say to them, look, it, I, I'm not saying that global warming doesn't exist. I'm simply saying, how do you know it's true? Well, because the scientists say so. My response is, they say what? Well, Dr. Peston, 98% of scientists believe in global warming. Okay, well, 98% of science, the vast majority of that 98% aren't climate scientists. Does it really matter what a pharmacist thinks? Does it really matter what a, a neurosurgeon thinks? But look at your attitude, I say. You've already decided that to be a scientist is like what used to being what a priest used to be, right? You hold this key. You're a doctor before your name. You wear a lab coat. I mean, and you have absolute faith in what they tell you. And I, I, I point out to them, how many times in your lives has science backtracked on what they said was true? How many times in your life have eggs been good for you and bad for you? How oh, yeah. Times? Has a glass of wine been useful or non-useful? How many times? Over and over again. And why is it that we don't hold science to the same standard? You expect, well, you expect religious people to make mistakes. Faith is, is an inaccurate thing. Right. But when science keeps making mistakes, when I was, 1970s, when I was in elementary school, you know that I was actually taught in 1976, in second grade, I was taught that the world was gonna freeze. Global ice age. That, they were wrong. But whenever science makes mistakes, it's always done with the best of intention. So in other words, these kids have been trained to see science as not as a 
uh, rational and empirical tool that requires veracity and, and truth and experimentation. They see it as what God used to be. It's religious for them. Well, and let's be honest. I mean, that comes straight from Marx because, uh, you know, the Marxism is based on science. They, they, they redefined the term uh, or even defined it actually probably in the first place to a large extent. And, you know, the, so, the social science, the science of social engineering, that is so when, when the left— Eugenic. Yeah, when the left and progressives talk about science, they're talking about the engineering of a better human being through all the different areas. And so let me add, from the progressive side, it's not just progressivism is very strong. It sits right underneath romanticism. So romanticism is, I, I would say, the kind of the larger kind of a thing that's operating. And, and from there, that's straight out of Rousseau. That's a belief, of course, that human beings are born good. So you're born good. You think about that. I mean, that's where the God break happens, um, because if you believe that human beings are, are, do not have uh, the capability of doing great evil, um, only if social institutions, uh, faulty social institutions, culture, or ignorance, well, those can make somebody do great evil, but somebody born in nature as a clean canvas is incapable of doing that because that is against, you know, that's the, that's the tossing away of the God. Is that not correct? Yeah, it is. I, 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 I have to think about the romantics. I think the romantics were actually superseded. I think what you mentioned earlier, that a lot of progressivism is based on emotion. That, mm. I think, is the residue of mm. romanticism. But I think it's been swallowed up now ah. by this uh, progressive utilitarianism. Mm. And I, I, I have, that's just my, th my thought about that. Well, let me just add this one thing, because as, as a point of theory, as we, you know, because warning to the viewers, I, I want to get into some of the academic stuff with you. It's like looking at romanticism, though, as German egoism. Then yeah, you can... that, that's better. Yeah. Um, and because, of course, out of that sprung Wagner, right. out of that sprung the Prussian. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I go a little bit further and say that with, with regards to the progressives, um, you know, virtue, right? That's romantic. That it doesn't matter what you do. See, in Christianity, Jesus made it clear. If he judged them not by what they say, he said. Judge them by what they do. Hypocrites. In, in postmodernism, in this progressive age we live in, you can be a Hollywood megastar like, um, who's the guy that won the Oscar for environmentalism? Uh, Leo DiCaprio. Remember this? A couple yes. of years ago, Leo DiCaprio gets a special Oscar for environmentalism. Like, what does that have to do with making movies? Nothing, but he got one because Hollywood was virtual signaling. He's this great lover of the planet. So what does he do? He leaves, with his, he leaves with his trophy, gets into a limousine, which drives him to a private plane. He flies all across the world to France, gets off his private plane, gets on a limousine, drives to his yacht in the Adriatic, and parties. This is, see, for the progressive, the feeling of virtue is everything. You don't have to do anything. Dostoevsky, who I've raved about already, Dostoevsky said the difference between the progressive and the Christian rightly understood, again, we're not talking about Christian hypocrites, the world's full of them, but people who take seriously the faith. The difference between the progressive and the Christian is that for the Christian, it's always about what you do, right? How many times did Christ warn, if, if you're going to do alms and charity, do it when no one's watching it. Don't, because you have your reward. If you get trophies for your, your activism and, and everybody feats you and like, Bill, like Al Gore, you made a billion dollars peddling global warming, maybe it's time to consider Christ said that you have your reward. The difference with the progressive is the feeling is everything. Political correctness, which, by the way, was coined by Mao, Chairman Mao. That's his word, political correctness, comes directly from his writing. Oh, and I know that. Good, yeah, he thought it was a good thing. 
right? That you that you are a good person, no matter how many you kill, if you believe what the state believes. And that's that's a huge difference. The one is focused on the individual, the other one's focused on the collective. I can be collectively miserable to people if I have the right idea, versus I, as a, a the from the philosophy of Christ, I as a believer must become the servant of others, not the dominator of others. So the the way we kind of describe things here at RegWatch when we're talking to our you know to our regular vaping viewer to try to explain a little bit about why there's such a ideological uh, reaction to vaping and to the concept of tobacco harm reduction and that vaping is a safer alternative to smoking because it really is a public health issue in and public health is a progressive movement I, I'll say this over and over and over again our viewers are are pissed pissed off that we keep talking about progressives but they don't understand. Per, you know, per, the progressive movement created public health. Public health is known as the progressive public health movement. They are inseparable. So once you realize that, you have to start picking out, you know, where do they come from? How do they think? What are they doing? And remember, at its base is that you have people that long for careers where they engineer people, where they tell people what to do about some of the most finite little things of their life. And so well, it takes a certain kind of person to do that. Well, look at it this way, too. Look at how spectacularly wicked over the last 150 years a, a significant number of radical progressive people who identified as progressives. I'm talking about Woodrow Wilson with his nasty racist regime. I'm talking about uh, uh, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, who's on record as having said that she wants abortion available to eliminate black and brown skinned babies. There's still People, the, the liberals are still celebrating these people, right? Anybody who ha ever had a Confederate in his, in his history has to constantly apologize, right? Anybody who is linked 160th to a slave owner is still tainted. But Margaret Sanger, who was a, a, a flat out Hitlerian eugenist, not a word. Rachel Carson, who basically oh, yeah. used fake data to kill millions of people. She, the, the war on DDT, which we now know DDT was relatively harmless. The things that they said D DDT was doing, ecosystems were, were, were collapsing, eagle species were going out, eggs were be not being hatched, it's all BS. But Rachel Carson used the, the, the influence of her progressive position, published that book, Silent Spring, and within a few years, everybody had banned DDT. Here's the thing, Western countries, could afford more expensive chemicals, which actually killed more native species. But places like Africa couldn't afford it. DDT was cheap. And up until Rachel Carson, levels of malaria in Africa, tropical Africa, were almost completely wiped out, very low. The minute DDT was banned and African nations couldn't afford the, the bigger chemicals, Hundreds, ten, tens, tens of millions of people died of malaria over the next 30 years. And, but she's a hero. At the University of Wisconsin, there's an endowed chair in her name. That would be like saying the Joseph Goebbels endowed chair at the University of Wisconsin. You'd never get that, right? You know, progressives know why they should hate uh, Nazis, right? But what they don't know is how much modern progressives have with the Nazis in common. Well, and for our vaping audience, they should understand this, too, because the public health movement that we know of has direct links right back to the National Socialists. When it comes to the hygiene, when it comes to cancer, when it comes to a complete hate on tobacco, um, you know, it stems directly from that. Yeah, I agree. And so, again, this look, I've already admitted that people who believe in God can be big 
jerks and that religion has caused a lot of chaos in the world. But I would say with Christianity, for instance, that when people are lying and cheating and stealing and killing, and a lot of Christians have done that, you go back and read the scripture of Christ, you will not find any, any injunction to that. It is contrary to the faith. But you, you look at the last 150 years where we've moved away from God, how many national socialists, how, much, how many of the national, so, national socialism is socialism? I'm, my, my university says, this is one that none of them, 25 years in the classroom, I have never had one kid who can tell me, not one, 27 years actually, what the word Nazi stands for, not one. No way. And when I write on the board, National Socialist German Workers Party, they disconnect. They've been bred to believe from the time they were little kids that socialism is goodness, equality, and fairness. What do you mean they were socialists? And to this day, you, I know you got a book there from Jonah Goldberg, Liberal Fascism, where he very deeply documents the history of genocide and eugenics from the progressive left. It's a huge tome of scholarship, historically accurate, and the critics panned it because he was going after liberals. The, the Nazis were atheists. They were Kabbalists. I totally, and I've got a, actually, I have a quote sitting here on my screen from liberal fascism. So it's, it's, it's waiting here for us right now. So this is Jonah Goldberg and liberal fascism. And I've just got, you know, a small quote out of here. America is today in the midst of an obscene moral panic over the role of Christians in public life. There is a profound irony in the fact that such protests issue most loudly from self-professed progressives when the real progressives were dedicated in the most fundamental way to the Christianization of American life. Progressivism, as the title of Washington Gladden's book suggested, was applied Christianity. The social gospel held that the state was the right arm of God and was the means by which the whole nation and world would be redeemed. But while Christianity was being made into a true state religion, its transcendent and theological elements became corrupted. These two visions, Darwinian organism, I guess I can't say that right, and Christian messianicism. Can you say those two words for me? Wait, Christian messianic, messianic Christianity. Okay. And Darwinian organismism. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Jonah. They seem contra contradictory today because they reside on different sides of the culture war. So they, they, they frame this so there's these two sides. There's the Darwinian side and the Christian side. But in the progressive era, these visions complemented each other perfectly. And Wilson, of course, President Wilson, embodied this synthesis. The totalitarian flavor of such a worldview should be obvious. Unlike classical, classical liberalism, which saw the government as a necessary evil or simply a benign but voluntary social contract, for free men to enter into willingly, the belief that the entire society was one organic whole left no room for those who didn't want to behave. So that is basically what, what's happening here, and it's a point that nobody understands, is that progressives started out as Christian, the social yeah, you gospel. Know, the, who was, it wasn't the Civil War. There would have been no Civil War in this country had it not been for the work over a hundred years of Christian abolitionists. It was Christian abolitionists who would not let the founders, would not let the country forget what the Constitution actually said about equality and freedom for all. It was the Christian, when the secularists and the academics were actually trying to defend slavery, to keep the, the, the union together, it was the abolitionists who were citing Christian principles. And I, if, if, I say, if, if it's my contention that the, gospel, the four gospels and the, the Old and New Testament, uh, forgetting religion for a second, as, as 
cultural shapers are the documents that most emphasize the individual in the history of the world. I mean, you can go back to the Old Testament. Uh, you know, you think about um, Greek mythology. And in Greek mythology, which was a very uh, secular culture, uh, they, had, they believed in their gods, but they were pagan gods. It was the god of the sky and the sky, god of the ocean. Uh, in Greek mythology, own, the gods only cared about great, if you were already beautiful or strong, if you were already incredibly brave or big or, or muscular, then the gods would pay attention to you. But if you were nobody, they didn't care. Go back and look at the God of the Old Testament and then look at Christ's ministry. The God of the Old Testament is forever picking out nobodies and making them somebodies. Abraham was a, 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 a feckless shepherd, right? David was the, the last son of, of, of Jesse, eight brothers ahead of him, right? The Old Testament and the New Testament keep coming around, culminating in the New Testament on this, don't call it religion, this philosophy of the individual. And if that in religion and, the, and theology is what that comes from, I would argue the Constitution of the United States, of all political documents, is the one that most enshrines individual liberty. That's why it's under attack. That's why progressive forces must undercut and remove the Constitution, because just they've done a really good job purging the public sphere of anything religious, Christian, or, 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 or theological. They've done it. Now they, the only thing that stands between them and dominance is the Constitution. And you see in our country, if you're paying any attention, how the progressives are at every turn trying to hack the legs out from under the Constitution. And why? Because the Constitution tells government we are more important as individuals than they are as a collective government. And each one of the states that have these, you know, very draconian totalitarian uh, response to COVID, most of them are democratic, i.e. progressive, and almost all of them are the same states that tried to implement vaping bans back in September of last year. And, you know, obviously vapors, rightly so, got, got up in arms about that. The very same legislation, public health legislation, that they got their hands into in August and September and October and all the governors and their lawyers and stuff trying to look to see how they could, you know, grab power. It's obviously in response, in contradiction to the con Constitution. You know, six months later, they just had all this practice going through that legislation and they just dropped it on for COVID. I mean. Yeah, and I tell my university kids this. All right, when I was growing up, the, 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 the Christian right was portrayed as the ones who wanted to ban everything. They, they want to ban heavy metal music because it's bad. They want to ban long hair and men, fair enough. But ask yourself at this point in time in American history, Western history, Canadian history, who's out there now wanting to ban everything? Who wants to stop you from having free speech if your free speech offends somebody? Who is it that wants to make sure nobody owns guns but government? Who wants to ban any kind of recreation that might impact the environment? Down and down and down the list. I can't think, maybe you can help me, I can't think of one thing that conservatives want to ban. Can you? When in the last 10 years has there been a conservative trying to ban something? I can't think of a single example of it. No, not really. And let, let's be honest. So, like, if we understand the fact that progressivism, you know, is a, inherently from the Kurdish, Christian tradition, because that is the case, and there, there was that split that happened, um, I would argue that I would argue that progressives are progressivism is a heresy, is a Christian heresy. Uh, they're part of the same family. They're like a spurned uh, a brother uh, to you know the older brother in the family. And it's, it's not like they, they say God, they, it's not like they say there is no God in a manner in which that they've got no reaction to. They actually hate God. They hate God. So then they must, they agree then there's a God and it's a God they hate. 
not a God they're indifferent to. I mean, that really seems to be the case. When you hear people on television, in podcasts like Joe Rogan and stuff like that, and the way that he describes not only Jesus Christ with contempt, and, you know, I'm a cultural Christian from the West. I'm secular to the degree that wasn't born up with any religion, um, but, you know, always been interested in huge respect for real, real religion. And I look at progressivism, I see a religion, and I see, I, see, I see the same religion. I see Christianity. I see people who are Christian, who feel spurned, who feel resentment, who feel anger, who feel hate. And so they want to destroy it. Um, and, of course, the Western civilization is built on the Christian uh, motif, the foundational morals and standards. And so they want to destroy it, too. I think you're right, but that that leads. I think this goes back to the de the definition of uh, progressivism that I was laying out. I think you really summed it up nicely. If you get rid of, if you hate God, you're right. It, Marx didn't just want, not believe in God. Marx saw God as the enemy, right? And, and so did Gramsci. It's a funny thing. He doesn't exist, but they all recognize that the idea of God was the problem. And that's what you and I are talking about. I mean, make up your own mind whether God exists. But what we're talking about here is the same thing they were. Only I disagree with them. I think the idea of God, whether he exists or not, actually is better for civilization than what we have now. Because again, with the idea of God, as you said, what did we progress to? What did we keep? Explain this to me. I tell this to my students all the time. If America is as bad as you say it is and your professors say it is, why is it that human rights, civil rights, women's rights, gay rights, why is it that all those things happen in the West first, nowhere else? If we were as corrupt and wicked as you say we are, then why is it that people from countries, black and brown skinned peoples, are dying to get in here? And when they get here, apparently they're facing all this racism. Why would they stay? Why, mm. why do they stay if it's as bad as they, it, it's completely divorced from reality. And your point is the one I wanted to hit on, that by hating God, not just ignoring them, we are creating not more atheists. If they were just atheists who didn't believe, maybe we'd have a society moving closer to atheism. Instead, they didn't disbelieve in God, they despised him. And so what have they created, the Marxists and the socialists, the Kabbalists, the Nazis? They created a new paganism, right? Yes. It's a new paganism where every individual's a god. He's in his face, right? We're all gods and goddesses, and we have the power to control. And whoever's elected king of us has absolute power over what to do with us. So again, we're not creating more atheists in this so-called rational age. What we are, we're, we're reintroducing we're re paganism uh, as a concept back into culture. Isn't it, isn't it in a way uh, a bit platonic, you know, Plato, in terms of the individual exists, but only as a part of the social organism? Yes, but I think when you, if you're talking about God, then that it's not true. The, the bigger picture, I would say, is while it's true that every individual is a part of the human family, but the next step, and Plato took it, by the way, every human and every human system is ultimately the brainchild of the one God. Right. When you and Plato believed that, right? And as when you severed that, right, you got to the you got the organ, and that's what jo Jonah Goldberg was saying. When you cut off God, right, all you had left was collectifying. But think about the think about the system here. You've got the individual, you've got the state, and you've got God. When all three of those things meant something, there was a hierarchy, right? You mentioned yourself, you cited the quote, that um, Christian individuals in the early United States saw government as a way to advance a spiritual message, right? To bring peace and prosperity. So as, as long as you had the individual, 
society and God in his place, you had something above the collective government that we had to heed. Some rules, some moral codes, some do's and don'ts, right? Look, thou shalt not kill. I don't care if you believe in God or not. A pretty good argument. But now that we don't believe any of that stuff, and we only see the individual and the collective, and we've decided that the collective is everything, the individual cell is nothing, you see what we've done for 150 years? We have eaten up the collective. It's like the Borg in Star Trek The Next Generation. We have absorbed individuals into ourselves, and the collective gets bigger. There's nothing above the collective. That's why the collective is so murderous, right? Uh, the individuals yeah. won't go along. The individuals won't happily go go along with Mao's great leap forward. Then we kill the individuals, right? And imagine trying to do that with a, the idea, if you take seriously, if your culture takes seriously the idea of God, imagine trying to do that. If there is a God and we're in, made in his image, just as an idea, let alone a truth, if there is a God and we're in, made in his image, it's a lot harder to murder that way. You know, you think about the history. I was talking about science a minute ago, and I, don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-science at all. It's, it's remarkably necessary. We need more scientists. However, we're very quick to blame religion for the bad things religious people do. Fair enough. But why don't we ever hold science again accountable for the things that they've done? What's the first thing scientists did when they split an atom? Built a bomb, right? Right. What's, how, did, how, did, uh, how was Hitler able to kill six million Jews? Well, we had guns and then machine guns, and then we had... Zyklon B gas, right, from a chemist operation. And so if, re if religious people are bad because things done in the name of religion belong to the religion, then don't we have to say the 150, 180 million dead people in the wake of communist and socialist governments over the last 100 years, is that not also laid possibly at the hands of science as well? It absolutely is. I mean, science is uh, conducted by human beings, and human beings are flawed with the capacity to do great evil. So, you know, science in the hands of those people, I mean, that's murderous. I mean, that absolutely sure. is the case. Well, I mean, you're, you, live in, you live in Canada, and it's coming to us, right, where uh, you, the, the government's forcing doctors who are religious either to quit or to accommodate, right? You will either further euthanasia, you will either participate in abortions if it's asked upon you, or you can't be a doctor. We're not there yet, but I imagine, I, I said this before, before the show to you, uh, you guys are just usually about 10 years farther down the progressive road than we are. Everything you're doing, we're moving towards. Well, that is true. I mean, the, uh, the transgender, uh, you know, hysteria, whatever you want to call delusion. it, delusion, uh, was first here. The thing that strikes me, and I, you know, I don't, when I talk about the transgender issue, as we kind of dance around now some of the issues, is that, is I don't, I don't need to make a comment on whether that's right or wrong. I just need to, I need to make comments on, on the fact that it's complete, total indoctrination, right? Not only indoctrination, but what it does is it forces human beings, so let's even take an adult, it forces an adult to fundamentally have to deny reality. You have to actually, in your brain, Put a filter there between at, at the most bi at the most fundamental level, which is biology, right? And and you have to change the way you think and talk about the most elemental thing known to man. And now, if that isn't communism, I don't know what it is. And if that and doesn't that open up your susceptibility to all the other lies and ways of thinking right. and, and for stuff. And I think that's well said. I'd take it a little bit further. I have look. This is America. If you want to dress like a woman, do it. If you want to get your body operated on, I mean, tattoo yourself. You want to cut off, do it. 
do you it. have that freedom. What you shouldn't have the freedom to do is force all of us. You, we, we shouldn't then be allowing teenage men who are transitioning their bodies away from masculine. How do I, I can't even say it? What are teenage men who are pretending to be women? Their DNA is male, their biology is male, you can cut, you can add. Male students, male young men with male bodies taking women's places in sports. That's where you draw a line. Why, because you have the freedom to believe you are that doesn't mean we have to allow you into women's bathrooms, right? This, I, oh, the fact that you believe you're transgender, do it. No one is gonna persecute you for that, but we are not going to get rid of our pronouns and, and the, they, and zim them everything to accommodate you. I mean, you are free to believe what you want, but you're not free. It's, it's proselytizing, right? I mean, if a religion in Canada was trying to do this, if a religion was trying to force these values on Canadians, right, that because of what we believe, you have to change, you would fight it tooth and nail. But when a population of the, a group of people from a population, perhaps less than 1% of your entire population is demanding these radical changes. Everybody, because they're progressives, everybody's immediately on board with this. Everybody's willing to deny reality because we don't want to hurt their feelings. Yeah, denying reality, look at what that gets you because right now there's, you know, half the population thinks lockdown saves lives, you know, thinks that it's a great thing that we destroyed the economy. And when they go out there and they scurry about in the world and they see the destruction that, that this decision has done with gutted lives, gutted businesses, shuttered places, destroyed cities, they're going to have in their brain this mechanism that allows them to deny reality. And the same people that told them that they have to deny biology are going to be the same people that are going to be telling them to deny the catastrophe that they see and get ready yeah. for the second wave. And another one's coming and you've got to do it again. And we went from a situation, and this is totally progressive, right? Uh, we went from a situation where we had, because about control, right, and the collective. We went from a system system where we had to flatten the curve. We were never, we weren't going to get rid of it, but we had to make it livable. Then that went to not until there's a vaccine. And now it's like not until there's a cure. Literally, it is the titanic hubris of the progressive. The guy, the, the, the movement that doesn't worship God, that hates God, that seeks to become God. We're not letting you go to work. We're not letting you go to the beach. We're not letting your kids go to school until we can guarantee you that no person in all of Canada ever again will ever get this virus, right? Oh, with all due respect, only God has that kind of power. That's and true. The state is trying to accrue it to its, themselves. Well, and that makes sense, right? Because they, they want to replace God with the state, right? And they have right. it. That's so right. let me throw God this at you. I, I've, not, I've not put this out there yet. We've, you talked early on at the start of our show about hypocrisy that exists with inside, you know, the progressive left movement. And you rightly so, there's some hypocrisy that, of course, that's been acknowledged with regards to uh, Christianity over the years. What's funny, though, is that the, the hypocrisy that usually is associated with religion is one of individual hypocrisy yep. towards the stated morals and, and standards of, of behavior socially and that kind of thing, and, and like charity the, and sex. The and family crusader who's having an affair, right? Right, exactly. Yes, like right. everything else, it, it tends to be more individually centered, whereas right. in progressive circles, the hypocrisy is institutional. Absolutely, and it's, and it's, and it's an affront to truth. <laughs> it's not, and it's not an individual hypocrisy against not, not drinking or something like that. So with, with them, so, so Cuomo comes out and perfectly uh, uh, says it. And that's, you know, if we can save just one life, all of this is worth it. 
all of it, meaning that all the pain and anguish that's going to come from the catastrophic, you know, consequences of, of the coronavirus, uh, you know, response, if we can save one life, it's all worth it. And that's reverberated out to the millions, and that is, you know, part of their, you know, ideological but, weaponary but kit. But it's dishonest. He, people like that play to the – notice what they do to get sympathy. They play to the individual, right? If we can just save your grandmother taking relatively well people, locking them in nursing homes where they all die, is going to be okay oh, if we save your mother. Right. Pushing people who have no resources and no food to the limits of alcohol, depression, and suicide, that's okay. If we can save one, you see how ridiculous double talk that is. And oh, yeah? Cuomo, you hit Cuomo on the head. So, okay, we've got Mario Cuomo, who presided over the most deaths of almost any city in the world for coronavirus, who is heralded by the American media as the hero of the COVID scheme, right? Of, of, the, of this. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, who basically has had his doctor standing there from the very beginning, doing almost everything they've said, he's the guy who's killing people, right? Yeah. You see how utterly subjective their outrage is. So, uh, totally. So, okay, so let me put this to you here then. Um, I'm going to state, state right now. So let me state on the show right now what's going to happen. I'm going to make a prediction on what's going to happen. And when this does happen, because this will indeed happen, everybody out there that has doubted um, our assessment of what a progressive is, you sh it should be the start of the red pill, my friends. Because, so we know, Cuomo and the whole mantra that says if we can save one life, then it's all worth it, including the catastrophe of the response. Yet, the other thing is we're all waiting for the vaccine since the second this happened, the vaccine, the vaccine, the vaccine is going to save us and allow us to return to a normal life. Now, the thing about a vaccine, and this is what will happen, is when it gets released, there are going to be people who die from the vaccine. Yep. That's and what everyone than, knows. And how and are they going to justify that? And more than one. And right? more than one. And so they're going to have gonna, to justify that. Yep. We're going to force you all to take a vaccine that theoretically could kill you, that may not work, right? right? Or that may cause side effects. We're going to force you to do that in the name of public health because if we can save just one life by doing it, it's absolutely outrageous. Right, right. So, and my argument to progressives, or to, excuse me, my argument to conservatives would be to not, and libertarians, is to not focus too much on the, that argument, though it's a huge valid, you know, you control what you put in your body. I mean, that's, that's something, right, that you have to have control over. But I want people to, I, the hypocrisy of them then arguing that, you know, 0.1%, of everybody that gets the vaccine will die. So how do they make that argument now? It's a complete 180 to say that. I think, I think progressives recognize that most of the country, in, in mine in particular, is more still acclimated to the, the other system, right? Mm. The idea that there is something bigger than materialism, the idea that moral values as underwritten by scripture, for instance, have a place that still, what is it, but between 70 and 75% of Americans still identify as Christian. Mm. So I think that they talk that way because that progressives have learned long ago that when you're cutting somebody's throat, you're <laughs> convincing them that they're, they're only doing it to save the rest of the world, right? right. That Like common core. Right. Yeah. We're going to give your kids. It sounds great. We're going to give your kids a common education. No mention that to make it common, we have to lower it for everybody. Right. But and you 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 uh, you, you sell it that way. And Mary, uh, Andrew Cuomo is shameless. 
And speaking so, of Cuomo and, and Common Core, real quick. Yeah, no, I was going to switch to Common Core, so continue. I don't know if you've seen it, but last week in the news, Andrew Cuomo, mayor of New York, governor of New York, and uh, Bill Gates, the technocrat who funded most of Common Core, the guy who helped get it into American schools, the guy with no educational background whatsoever, who was the money behind getting it started. Bill Gates is partnering now with Andrew Cuomo to re-envision New York education in the wake of COVID virus. So, so a lot of our viewers, a lot of our viewers have a real hate on for Bill Gates because of the whole vaccine issue. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you've you've just come in here and just went crisscross, you know, just intersected something here. Is Bill Gates really the the evil devil that he's being made out to be? You know, he is. Uh, if you if you equate that with a technocrat and a when you take a technocrat and you take a an ideological progressive and you give him those resources it's almost inevitable that mm. they're gonna go the wrong way. It, it, you know, Ronald Reagan said this, and I think he was exactly right. Why is it if America is so bad, if the West is so bad, with our individual liberties and our freedoms and our second amendments, if we're so bad, why is it that we have to keep people out of our countries with guns? And why is it that countries like China and North Korea and the former Soviet Union, they needed guns to keep people in? There is no way around that syllogism. There is no way to square that circle because it's absolutely true. And the more progressive and the more visionary and the more centralized the government, there is no example in the history of the world where that ever turns back the other way. It, it always moves one way. And that's why I tell my kids, 20th century gave us socialism, Nazism, and communism. And out of that, what still remains is communism, socialism, and progressivism. Progressivism is a, right now, slightly more benign aspect of those things, but what, they all the same thing in common. They don't believe in God. They believe that human beings are, like you said, to be shaped, right? We must use technology. We must use our political vision to only allow people to grow and be a certain way. We must make people loyal to the state. We're gonna stop you from talking if you say something that hurts somebody's feelings, right? Uh, this kind of, uh, of, of petty tin pot dictatorship, that's what you're seeing now in America. The progress with progressive, the, the new heroes bill, right? Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi just put a $3 trillion bill on the table. How much does she care about the sick and the dying, right? $3 trillion, the vast majority of it has nothing to do with COVID-19. It's funding the Green New Deal. It's huge payouts to illegal immigrants. It's funding the World Health Organization. It's bailing out the post service. She's using this in her, and she's beloved for it, right? She's your technocrat with her two sub-zero freezers full of gourmet ice cream. She's la looking down on you, and she's putting this bill together, $3 trillion worth on $3 trillion we've already spent, and almost none of it goes to COVID. And she and her minions see this as the most brilliant thing in the world. I want to ask you uh, a, a, a question here. It's, it's a, back to education, and it, it is about Common Core. So Common Core claims to teach critical thinking, yet yields like-minded students without the ability to think critically. Yeah, so, critical thinking is one of those buzzwords, like, like the other ones we've talked about, right? Like, uh, if we could only save one. Critical thinking actually literally, this is very Soviet. It's not, this is what drives me nuts. It's not like we don't have examples of this. The Soviet Union did it all the time. When idiot Westerners like 
Bernie Sanders would fly over to, to Russia, the Soviet Union, on his honeymoon, and he'd be shown around by these Russian diplomats, right? They would take him to these Potemkin villages, right? right? And you know what a Potemkin village uh, is. Explain it, it, for our viewer. Explain for our viewer. A, a Potemkin village is literally named for what the Soviets used to do. With all the poverty and the suffering and the starvation that was going on in the Soviet Union, when Western uh, useful idiots That's would, it. Go to the, would go to the Soviet Union, they would show them around very specific areas where in these little small villages, the grocery stores were packed with everything, and nobody actually had to really even pay for anything, and all bounty was there. It was all a Potemkin village. It was a complete scam, and people like Sanders, Bernie Sanders still believes the truth of that nonsense. Despite the obvious historical precedence, the evidence we have of this now, they, these are true believers. And the yep. entire Soviet machine, was, as was the Nazi machine, was, was, was created under the premise that if you lie to people convincingly, they will believe anything. Arguably, arguably a vast majority of any population under a dominant hegemonic ideology. So we don't need to actually say progressives. It could be right. any uh, a group. And of I would argue... Uh, religious fascism exists too. Sure. I mean, there have been times in Christianity's, Christianity's history where it's lapsed into fascism. I'm thinking of the Inquisitions. And we certainly know, I'm in Canada. I don't know if you're going to send a hitman down to get me. And we certainly know that there are major aspects of Islam that are, uh, let's just say, fascist, you censors out there. If you're shooting little girls who try to go to school, if you're telling a young woman that if she talks to a man that's not her husband, you can stone her to death, in the 21st century, if you're justifying, if Osama bin Laden is getting young Islam, Islamic men to kill themselves for the faith, but he can't be bothered, he gets shot dead in a cave with all of his American porno on the shelves, then you've got a fascist problem, just like Christianity did 400 years ago, just like many other religions have had, right? And so it's not just a progressive thing, but we don't live in those areas anymore. We live in this one. True. So let me ask you a question again, back to education. Bit of a wide uh, it, thing, but also tight. Okay, so so the wide thing is just saying history. What happened with teaching history? But let me preface this with really deep, and that's I believe that I believe that what the left now the wider than just progressive, but what the left has to do is they have to convince people that there's no such thing as a type of person. Because once you recognize that people have types, then you recognize we're always the same people. Then you have to recognize an external God. Then you have to recognize, you know, there's things and traits that we have that we were born with that are good or bad. And that's, that's just the way they are. So types of people, they have to get rid of types. It's one of the big things. So if you, will, if you were to teach proper history right back through to the Greeks, and see and hear the definitions of sophistry and sophists and stuff and realize, oh my God, those are the people that are right here, you know? False prophets in the Old Testament, right? Yeah, exactly, Every, right? We've always known this is nothing new. That's right, right. So they can't anything. afford, they can't afford for, for their progressive story and the story that everything's bad and we have to move forward and destroy everything that's here because there's a wasteland back there. They can't allow people to understand that we're just like the same people 100 years ago. We're Let just like the same people. Let me give you an example in my classrooms, right? Dead white males. Our kids have been uh, primed to believe that Western authors are only great because they're white. Shakespeare's <laughs> not a big deal. It's, if he weren't a, a privileged white male, we wouldn't even be reading him. It's all <laughs> these white men who are in the canon because they squeezed everybody else out. That's what they think. And so when I give them Shakespeare, mo most Shakespeare professors, when they teach Shakespeare, 
they'll teach their kids to read Shakespeare from a feminist perspective. Or we're going to do Marxist readings of Shakespeare today. Mm -hmm. We're going to look at Shakespeare through environmental issues. So even when you give a good book to a kid in the modern university, yeah. you politicize it. I, on the other hand, which makes me so damn controversial at mm -hmm. the university, when I give them Shakespeare or Milton or the Bible, my job is to show them what they thought. And when they see what Shakespeare thought, they know that they've been lied to. They yeah, know that that's the thing. That's and that's my my exact point. God, you went right there. So now I know I've had it because I've not, not articulated this on our, on our show before. And the fact is, is that for the books that they can't burn, for the paintings they can't burn, uh, for the history they can't stamp out or erase or denounce, then they have to apply the feminist lens to it. They have to problematize whatever literature is left that they could not destroy, actually destroy, destroy. And so Despite then they own. The only way you can look at it that they teach you is through the feminist uh, problem, problem lens. Well, the better phrase for it is social justice. True. What has happened yeah. is that social justice configured as not just— Somebody once said, what a great historian once said, that the Holy Roman Empire was neither Holy Roman nor an empire. He was right. Mm. Social justice is neither social nor is it just. It is using radical progressive politics— to destroy tradition, to undercut history, to lie about philosophy. It is social justice is anti-social. It's yeah. anti-history. It's anti-national memory. It's anti-truth when it comes to dealing with people. Biology, right? The gender question, right? We can't pretend that biology exists. It's anti-social and it's unjust because, again, you've got primarily white liberals telling all kinds of white kids that they're guilty of things that happened hundreds of years before they were born. Kids who are being told from the moment they set foot on campus that you're toxic if you're a, mask, a man, that you're uh, white privilege, that uh, you, you participate in white supremacy by having the advantages you do, that if you're a patriot who loves his country, if you're a religious person who loves his God, you're participating in systems of oppression that destroy other people. Give, over and above the fact that the historical record shows us that you take all of the evils of Western culture in kind, you take them, and you lay them alongside the virtues which no one ever talks about. Go by all means, by all means, let's teach our kids what's wrong with Christianity, where Christianity has made their mistakes. But how, we, how come we're not teaching them about the hospitals, about the educational reform? about the liberties that women won under Christian, uh, Christian countries. The fact that, you know, slavery, let's talk about slavery. Our kids, my kids know that Americans held slaves. They don't know that the Egyptians died. Oh, you, try sitting in a multicultural class with kids of different races and tell them this, right? Who is the first great civilization in the world? Built pyramids. Oh, the Egyptians. Oh, yes, exactly. How did the Egyptians build their pyramids? A little silence there. Would it surprise? And then I say, does anybody remember the story of why were the Jews stuck in Israel? Why, what happened with the Exodus? And then one kid will raise his hand, oh, they were slaves, right. Who built the pyramids? For 3,000 years, who did the Egyptians use to create their great civilization? Slave labor. And guess what that means, kids? The first great slave-holding nation in the history of the world was African. Let's stop pretending, and I'm, yeah, well, you can't pretend Egyptians were white. Well, I mean, well exactly. I mean, it was African. And so the argument, when you hear these black Athena people, the ones, the, these racists who want to argue that um, while white people were picking their noses in caves and hanging from trees, there was this incredible black 
culture flourishing a thought that the Black Athena movement. Yeah. Fine, you can have that myth, but then acknowledge that you were the first slaveholders. And we can't give them both truths. If we give them both truths, which is to say, give them the truth, they won't become progressives. And that's why you can't. That's why all progressive movements, and I insist that socialism and Nazism and Bolshevism and Marxism have are un, unadulteratedly progressive movement. Well, I totally agree. We've Absolutely. made that point on the show. Progressivism is the thing that it's progressivism is the interdisciplinary <laughs> aspect of all of them. It sits over top. You are in good company here with that. Let me let me let me bring this up because it's it's tough inside here. So so here's the deal. The Old Testament and you know the Jew Jewish slavery under Egypt and then of course the Exodus, you could argue totally that the Old Testament is the is the first well it's the first monotheist oppression narrative. Yep. So so Judaism is based on the oppression narrative and the ex exploitation narrative and the ex and the oppressed and the exploited were the Jews who were the you know the focal point of it. Then you move to the New Testament and in the New Testament the Christians are also oppressed. So Christianity in its heart is an oppression narrative. Sure. To to that degree. But, so is but it is it strange then that to have you know progressives in the left and everything else, Marx create an oppression narrative. Aren't they just following along with what Christianity and Judaism had already laid laid in front of them? You're right. Progressives see the Christian story as an oppressive one, but it's not a couple hundred years of radical repression of Christians, or and they can't see. Notice how little sympathy, little interest uh, the progressive left has for Christians being killed across the globe. Oh yeah, People they have real, none. No. There are more Christians being killed every year than any other religion. There are more Christians who are being killed all throughout Africa, all throughout China, right? Uh, all throughout uh, socialist countries. There are more Christians dying every year than anybody else from any other religion. And having said that, you see absolutely no sympathy, none whatsoever. When Christianity, which has been in places like Iraq for 2,000 years, is being forcibly driven out, when, Christ when uh, the Chinese communists are bulldozing churches and crosses, the, the progressive left cheers. They see this as visionary. So if you care about oppression, then you should care about all oppression. I do. I don't want to see progressives persecuted. I don't want to see people who just don't believe what I believe persecuted. It's bad for all of us. Sure. But the degree to which the progressive requires your suffering, requires others to pay that price so that they don't have to is frustrating. I think I think overall, I think my point there is more is more like see what happens when you create an oppression narrative. If the narrative is about oppression, it it turns into victim, you know, victim, you know, I'm a victim, right? And so victimhood. I, and I'm just pointing out the irony that both Judaism and Christianity is based on the oppression narrative, and yeah. us conservatives right now are feeling the brunt of the oppression narrative in it as a narrative gone wild. Right. And I mean, so, you know, Look, and it's the founder, the founder of Christianity, the man, the man slash God, depending upon what you believe, who came to orchestrate the religion was crucified to a tree because he tried to love people and heal them. Right. That's an oppression narrative. But you will never get that out of, out of a liberal who only sees the modern Christian who's against gay marriage. Right. That's all sure. they see. They see nothing else about it.
Well, they and for them, it's all about these issues. So mindful of time, and I'm thankful, so thankful that you're you're giving us the time. And it's great that your voice has gotten gotten good. Yeah, I talked myself out of it. Yeah, that's what you knew you're going to do. So I'm gonna. I just want to jump to a real quick quote. It's very quick, um, and some of our viewers will know this. This is Aristotle in the rhetoric. Aristotle perceives plainly the degree to which envy is felt only towards those who are themselves our equal, our peers. What is decisive is that we do not ourselves really wish to have what we envy, nor do we hope to acquire it in the course of envy, but would like to see is it destroyed so far as the other person is concerned. The more near we are equal to the man with whom we compare ourselves, the greater is our envy. Interesting. C.S. Lewis said it a little more concisely. C.S. Lewis said, uh, that man who insists to you that he's as good as you does so because he knows he's not. That man who has to insist upon the fact that he's as good as you does so because he knows he's not. Yeah. That is definitely a very C.S. Lewis kind of a thing, isn't it? Yeah, the screw tape letters. And don't forget, in the screw tape letters, Lewis predicted, predicted 1940, he predicted what would happen in American education. He said, the spirit of I'm as good as you will take over in the university. That's what he called it. This is the devil. Screw tape, in case for your listeners, Screw Tape Letters is a book written by C.S. Lewis where you've got a senior devil in charge of his nephew. And the senior devil is trying to teach, Screw Tape is trying to teach his, his nephew, Wormwood, the best way to destroy human souls. It's really a fantastic read, how evil works. And in the book, they talk about education, and the devil says, the spirit of I'm as good as you will infect their schools and university. Even kids who can't do work or won't will be given the same grades and will be passed because it would give them a trauma not to. Mm. When I'm as good as you has had its way in, in Western universities, all education will have come to an end. That's, uh, that's astonishing. 80 years ago. Yeah, well, you know, and that's the other thing, right? If they actually let people read, uh, you know, in the back and you actually taught. I mean, for right. instance, I mean, um, Ludwig von Mises and, and his book Socialism, written in 1919, you know, uh, published in 1922. And he describes socialists and how socialism works and how people think and everything. I mean, he describes people today, you know, and it's just... Yep. If you were to read that, you go, well, wait, I, now I understand socialism better. A couple of pieces here before I have my last question. One is a Shakespeare uh, question. I, I remember turning on Curiosity Stream, which was, you know, Netflix obviously is progressive, and this is the science-y documentary kind of uh, version that they released a couple of years ago. And, you know, just for self-punishment, I was on Curiosity Stream and I went to their historical section and they had a piece on Shakespeare. And I was struck by how the first 120 seconds was maligning Shakespeare's character. It, it was insinuating that he didn't even write the stuff. Um, you know, and just over, I mean, and of course, I mean, I could just, the dripping, seeping hate and, and you know, social justice crap coming through. And I just wonder, I mean, like, well, that's ironic because we know nothing about his personal life. We know we have no private conversations. We have no private diaries from him. The only documents we have on Shakespeare are wills and lawsuits, literally. We know nothing, and that's what drives us nuts. We'd sacrifice everything we do know about Shakespeare, all that legal stuff, for one conversation recorded with somebody else. So this, gets, this, this also is a progressive problem, right? So we don't know the first thing about Shakespeare, and they know it. 
they're judging Shakespeare on the basis of his plays. And in his plays, right, there are kings and queens and there are peasants. Shame, shame, shame. And in his plays, Christian il uh, illustrations are everywhere. We've got Shakespeare's Bible. It's completely lined all over the place with passages he took from the Old and New Testament and put it in his plays. And in his plays, he doesn't have any gay marriages, right? In his plays, right, you don't have modern social issues discussed, right? So Shakespeare is being judged totally on, he, he may be the most liberal person who ever wrote a book, but we don't know because we know nothing about his personality. We have no information. They're judging him. And think about how crappy this is if you're an educator. They're judging him on his books. That's like judging Mark Twain because of the character Jim in Huckleberry Finn, right? Mm. Twain was fighting against racism, right? And so you, you got these idiots now who see the, the N-word, right? Oh, so we got to take that away. And so my favorite story about that is, you know, California, the California college that actually forbid the teaching of Mark Twain to freshmen because the N-word was in it. Ralph Ellison, the great African-American novelist who wrote Invisible Man in the 1950s, he said that Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn was the most moral book on race that anybody had ever written. Nobody did a better job savaging and satirizing the depredations of slavery than Twain. And yet, the modern progressive just sees the N-word. They're, they're, they're doing it now to, what, to kill a mockingbird. Now, to kill a mockingbird is on the wrong side of progressives. That book in the 1960s was a huge boon to the civil rights movement. It was a huge trigger to getting white Hollywood to march with black protesters. Now, because it includes the N-word, it's not fit for human consumption. That's how progressives, they're like termites. They completely undermine the beauty and truth of everything, and it collapses. It's, it's an, it, the capacity to destroy, it, is just, yep. it must destroy. Like, her, like herds of locusts, I mean, just chewing up huge fields full of culture and literature and beauty and poetry, just chomping it up and spitting it out like pulp. It's very frustrating. Yeah, I, you know what? I just, uh, I think that, okay, so, damn it. If you'd only talked for another 30 seconds, I might have found it before, uh, before. Um, okay, let's, uh, I've got uh, The Socialist Phenomenon here by Igor Sheravich, Sheravich, yeah, Sheravich. This for, if anybody's out there, I mean, obviously you can't just go get this. It's going to cost you a few bucks to get it. But it talks about socialism um, pre-Marx, really, in that sense. It's like to looking back through time, a lot of primitive cultures and stuff like that. Looking at our capacity for socialism is something that is wired in us, is the argument that's being made here and that it always manifests itself in a complete destruction of whatever exists um, uh, of a society and a structure as the thinking takes hold. My final word on this would be, the reason socialism must lie, must distort, and, and I'm, I'm absolutely pointing out that in civilized Western cultures like America, America and Canada, socialism is represented expressly through progressivism. Mm. They are the same thing. That's true. Uh, the reason socialism has to lie, has to deny biology, has to deny reality, has to do away with the past, has to stifle our liberties now and override our opinions and our feelings is because it's a chimera. It's not, chimera. it's not based on anything. It's a complete, utterly subjective, made-up way of seeing the world that has no analog. 
You cannot go back in history and find evidence for the way they view people. You said it earlier, right? How, I, I asked my kids that question. We started the show with this. I asked my kids at the university, if human beings are inherently good, I said, have you ever met anybody inherently good? <laughs> and they all say no, right? I said, do you know, is, uh, I said, if, if everybody's inherently good, where does all this evil come through? And they say what they've been trained to say, institutions. Right. Well, people are good, but the institutions are bad. My response is, well, what are institutions made up of? And they're short-circuited, right? Sure. P how do people be perfectly good? And this is your romantic uh, philosophy here. How do people, how are people so perfectly good when you leave them alone, but the minute you institutionalize them, they become wicked? And Marxism and socialism is nothing but institutionalization. It is the premier definition of institutionalization. Socialists want government institutions to be everything. And you can just see the simmering double talk here, right? So from my perspective about the socialist issue, there is nothing in socialism that rings true. It's all hollow. History mm. has disproven it. Philosophy denies it. Human nature refutes it. Theological understanding completely rebuffs it. Personal experience demonstrates that it doesn't work. Yet they cling to their idea because the, the, uh, c the contrary ideas might just lead them back to God. In a, way, in a way, it's a practice of self-misunderstanding. It's cultured, sophisticated ways of lying to yourself. Yep. Right. And so, sophisticated, sophisticated up until the point when people disagree with you enough that you kill them. Yeah, well, you first got to you know, yell at them and scream at That's them. Right. And then, yell and at then... them and then beat them then and turn them and then kill them. That's pretty much how it goes if you're a dissident in a communist country. Yeah, it's a process of ex-nomination. Yes, it is. So last question for you then is in this post-COVID or sliding, continuing COVID kind of a world, what's, the what, what's gonna happen with education? We've had this whole school, homeschooling. I think it's a, a bit ironic that homeschooling for the most part has always been defined as a right-wing evangelical kind of Christian thing. Yep. Now you've just had millions of progressives get thrown into homeschooling and some like. That kind of thing, I think a lot like that's, you know, clearer about that. So, you know, what are the dangers of that? Um, and what do you see moving down the road here for education? Because a lot of kids are not going to get back until September. Well, I, I do think that, that a, potential, uh, a potential benefit of the virus, not saying that it's, it was good, but a potential silver lining is that a lot of parents now are realizing two things. One, it's not that hard to teach our kids at home. It's not that difficult. And two, they're recognizing how little those kids know. I mean, now that they're home with these kids every day and they're talking to them about books and they're trying to explain things to them, taking a hand and teaching them, I think many parents have realized, liberal or conservative, have realized, geez, whatever else you wanna say about the public schools, they're just not doing a good job giving my kid basic skills. That is obvious, especially if you're, if you're teaching them now. So um, that's why, what are you already seeing? You're seeing a huge concerted effort to snuff out homeschooling, right? There was going to be a uh, homeschool conference at Harvard Law School this June. The entire premise of it was that homeschooling was Christian authoritarianism and those children must be taken away from the families and homeschool banned. That was going to be the Harvard Law School program. This became so publicized, we did shows on it, that they've canceled the conference. Hopefully they're gonna reschedule it next year. So they're already now using the, uh, and the argument is kids' rights. Parents don't have any rights, the kids do. Every, the, the lead professor who says, is a woman by the name of Elizabeth Bartolet, 
Her argument is that it's a fundamental right of every human child to have a government-sponsored public education. And so therefore, parents who want to educate their own kids are violating the civil rights of their children. That's how they're coming after it. They tried to work on the parents. They tried to get parents to stop doing it. Now they're going to say that it's harmful to kids, and because of that, we'll have to ban it. Oh, and you know, who was the first civilization in the last 200 years, the very first one, to ban private schools and homeschools? In the that last 200 Hitler. years? Hitler. No. The really? Nazis were the first nation, the socialists, to ban all homeschooling. In fact, there is only one law in Germany today that was on the books in the Nazi regime. It is in, Ger in Germany, if you try to homeschool your kids today, it's a federal offense. Now, why is it that all the bad ideas seem to be coming out of Germany? The Germans were, as they often are, they were the loudest and they made the much, much more noise, right? The Bolsheviks were every bit as vicious as the Nazis, but they were a little more subtle about it, right? Uh, they, they, they were interested in showing you Potemkin. When, when the, 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 the Soviets would show you Potemkin villages, Hitler would show you get concentration camps, right? <laughs> they were louder and they were taller and blonder and German. That's why. But think about it. The, what, 1933 to 1945, 12 years of Nazism. What, 50 million dead, maybe? 30 million dead, six million Jews. How, how many did Stalin kill? About 80 million? And Chairman Mao probably killed over 100 million people. Not, this is not a defense of Nazis. I call them socialists. I don't like socialists. Yeah, but I mean, honest, I, if you turned on Netflix, say, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, I think it's changed a little bit in the last year and a half. But for a good three, four years, from 2015, you know, 16, 17, 18, you're just a wash in Nazi uh, uh, documentaries. Well, it's, Trump. it's Trump, right? Trump's yeah. a Nazi, that's why it's happening. With, yeah. with the election of Donald Trump, now we're trying to scare everybody with Nazis again. I made the point, and I'm gonna make it again, that the, this is not, I'm not meant to be insensitive, but as far as killing goes, the Nazis didn't live long enough to do enough, right? <laughs> they were pale in comparison to who the, who the Soviets killed. And the communist Chinese have killed and are killing more. The Chinese execute more of their people every year right now than every other nation on earth combined. You've got a million, 1.2 million Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps doing dangerous work, uh, unprotected from the virus. And where is the international outcry? What do you think would happen if Donald Trump had a sweatshop with 30 Muslims making tennis shoes or ties for his boutiques? We would never hear the end of it. Amnesty International will be all over it. But the Chinese can intern one, one million Muslims, and I'm not even hearing the Muslims talking about it. How does that happen? Yeah, uh, it happens because uh, people, it happens because people have a huge capacity to deny uh, what's, what reality is. You know what, you've, so I've got a video that's not been released yet. It's right on the money on what you just said. It's five minutes long. Do, you, do we have like another eight minutes? Can I play this and then sure. catch your reaction and then we'll wrap? Sure. That's fine. Okay, because this is gonna be a brand new release. Um, and this is a part of uh, our kind of a monologue or, or monologue stuff. Let me just make sure I've got the audio there. I do, and let me just make sure that I can get this over here. Okay, so it's not that long, so. Uh, And here we go.
God help you if you live in a state with a governor or premier that is dragging this lockdown out. The Democrats are absolutely already running on that Trump completely, totally screwed up uh, the response, the federal response, and people died. That's it, I mean, of course, he's gonna be painted as the devil. What the Democrats are gonna have to do, and they're already doing, is they're running on pro-lockdown. As this second wave comes in October or November, right before the presidential election, what's gonna be the message from the Democrats? They're gonna have to run on the virtue of a lockdown. More lockdowns. The presidential election is going to be a referendum on lockdowns. The use of wokeness as a leverage, as a battering ram, as a... You know, David Rubin, as I was saying on uh, Ben Shapiro's show last week, was making an argument that we're heading into a bit of a utopia where people are going to be um, so preoccupied with dealing with all of the, you know, personal tragedies and, and challenges around the catastrophe that is the coronavirus that they're just going to look at the woke stuff and just go, oh, we don't have time for that anymore. And I have to tell you that that is absolutely not going to be the case. Using this as an opportunity to reinvent ourselves is what Mr. Dave Rubin was saying on the Ben Shapiro show. Not a conservative or right point of view, a progressive point of view if there ever was one. You don't know anything about the progressive left and how they fight if you believe that they're going to back down now. Politically correctness is communism. Wokeness is communism. It is a mechanism to destroy the people who believe that they're victims. The, the ability to get them out of that victimhood mentality, I, it's gotta be near impossible with the amount of conditioning that they've received and continue to receive and you know rewards and encouragements that people receive for being oppressed and the victim. Allow me to say this about communism, folks. I'd like everybody to remember this one thing. Socialism was invented by white people. Marx and Engels are white. Lenin was white, Stalin was white. I mean, the whole ball of wax, this is a white on white thing. This isn't a white invention. This isn't a foreign thing. This came out of the bones uh, of us from Europe, this communist way of thinking. When you look, you know, in the mirror, and if you're white, you're looking at a communist. It's important to know that. It's not some foreign race. It's you. The catastrophe of this lockdown, of this shutdown, is still unknown. So we know this. There are going to be members of the herd that get out in the wild, they get let out in the wild, and they come out with a bit of a dissonance going. They, they actually kind of see that this has gone too far and are going to see the destruction in their communities, the thing that the left doesn't want you to see or believe in. So what's gonna happen is this. Woke is gonna be used to smash the people in the herd, the progressives, the progressive lefters that have had a little bit of an awakening that have said, maybe this is a little bit too much and they're gonna get let out into the, running out into the wild over the next couple of months, coming up to the election, and woke is gonna be used to smash them, to get them back into the fold. So if you can throw the race shit at them, you can throw the gender stuff at them, you can throw the transgender stuff at them, you know, the whole kit and caboodle, the ball of wax, keep them so upset and so twisted that they won't have time to deal with the dissonance that's around lockdowns save lives. They can't afford their own people in the herd 
to be able to come to a conclusion on their own about the devastation of the aftermath of the coronavirus. They can't afford to let people be a free thinking. They need to stop people from making their own conclusions. The horror of what they have done to the world, the horror of what public health officials who made this decision to lock down and then continue the terror. I don't recall casting a ballot for Theresa Tam. Do you? Did anybody uh, cast a ballot in the US for Fauci or BRICS? No. Who elected these public health people to make these decisions? We didn't. The left wants to be in control of absolutely everything in your life. If you haven't figured that out yet, if the lockdown, the shutdown, and the total destruction of your civil liberties has not yet rung into your brain, that they want to control everything, well, you're a lost cause, and likely you are the problem. So there you go. <laughs> A lot of what we said, you've, you've encapsulated it nicely. Yeah, it's a strong stuff. You know, the sauce is not very sweet. No, and I, I, you know, as somebody who has spent his whole life inside what is supposed to be a higher learning environment, right? In universities where we're supposed to be putting aside differences and exposing kids to a wide range of ideas, I am stunned in the face of 25 years how what used to be tolerance for ideas that differed has now become pure monolithism, right? Everything is one way. You are either on the side of the progressives, you are either politically correct, you are either uh, woke, as you said, or you are, there's no middle ground. And think about this too. There are very few conservatives like me in universities. There's, there's not one in 200 like me in universities. I, I bet it's not even one in 500. That means that there are a lot of moderate liberals, may, way more moderate liberals than there are conservatives who are also being pushed this way. They're not liberal enough. Most of the people getting excoriated by universities, being mistreated by universities, aren't conservatives. We're not even in there. It's what used to be known as traditional liberals, classic liberals, liberal people who have an open mind. They are being persecuted now. You are either with us or you are against us. That's the progressive line, especially in universities. Well, it's a, it's a bit of a disaster. I mean, is there any hope here for us? Or like, am I, I'm going to ask you, is it's there not hope? Gonna, it's not going to come from within. Uh, universities are not going to reform themselves. Public schools are not going to fix themselves. Something like this, this kind of a catastrophe, again, if it drives many parents to realize, A, I can homeschool, and B, my kid's undereducated, maybe something like that, like we said before, might begin to wreak change. I don't know. I, you're exactly right, though. The, the, the progressives will not give up control easily, no matter what pandemic we're suffering. Mm. Well, let me just thank you so much for coming on. I, my producer just sent me a note and said, please thank him, you know, profusely. And seriously, it's been a great conversation. So thank you so much. Loved it. And any other time you want to pick it up again, I'm, I'm glad to do it. Thanks for the time today. Awesome. Just hang right there for me. And while that is it for this edition of Reg Watch, before you head off, please head over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com and consider making a financial contribution to our coverage. It's easy. Just dig into your wallet and find a few dollars and toss them our way. Yes, we'll take cash. If you've got COVID, cough on it. I'm all okay with that. And, you know, there you go. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. For RegulatorWatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.